Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. I should really come up with a tagline that doesn't trip up my tongue. Um, As always, at the end of each month, we do a bit of a news docket overview with Emily Jashinsky, culture editor over at The Federalist, shaper of intrepid young minds over at Young America's Foundation. Um, She is, of course, a fellow with us independent women's forum. Um, and she's a general cultural commentator. She is a group chat participant. She is all of the above. Um, and once a month for these after dark episodes, she's on high noon. So, um, welcome Emily. And it seems like a lot has happened since the last time we did one of these after dark episodes. I mean, for starters, we're, there's been a month of a war. Um, (laughs) and I did want to start today, uh, with talking about Biden's speech in Poland um, and his either gaffe or maybe not a gaffe um, where, where he essentially called for regime change. He said that basically, you know, Putin cannot be allowed uh, to maintain power in Russia. He can't be allowed to do what he's doing. Then the administration walked that back and said, he's only referencing what Putin did in invading Ukraine and prosecuting this war, not regime change in Russia. Um, But initially everybody read it uh, in the the plain straightforward manner, which I think it, it, in a plain reading, his comments did appear to call for regime change in Russia. Um, you know, what do you think about how the Biden administration has handled this? Quite aside from, I mean, we know that the Biden administration is sort of incompetent and feckless, but um, it seems to me there hasn't been, it's even worse than usual. There hasn't really been like a strong actual consistency in the messaging. We seem to be on the one hand, very clear about not being quote unquote escalatory. Um, and, and some of our actions have been that way, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've stopped, for example, the MIGs transfer, mm-hmm. uh, to Ukraine from Poland to Ukraine. Um, on, on the other hand, there are these like throwaway comments and this entire framing of the war as, you know, liberty versus tyranny. Um, you know, it seems like this administration doesn't really have whatever their foreign policy is. It's not coming through consistently. Um, in a way that is predictable from the administration. And that seems to me, regardless of where you fall on in terms of, of what how we should deal with this situation, that seems to me to be a dangerous combination. What do you think? It's funny you say that because actually when um, Hill TV got booted from YouTube for a week, it was over a video conversation in which uh, Ryan Grimm was asking me if Trump had this, this madman theory in his favor when dealing with uh, foreign relations, right? So if Trump was so unpredictable that it actually benefited the United States because it made world leaders afraid of him um, in a way that Biden or any other sort of uh, blob denizen uh, doesn't have. It doesn't give you an advantage over somebody who is like Brookings, Brookings Institute certified. And I think the answer to that question, as I said then, is yes. But Biden is unpredictable in a very different way. He's unpredictable um, in the sense that you can never expect him to sort of project whether you, you can't expect him to project an accurate depiction of what the policy is. The policy is not going to change. Whatever Biden wants to do is going to be what the the blob and the foreign policy establishment wants to do. Whether he expresses that accurately is a different question. And what it does actually is just project um, 
you know, the, the opposite strength that project, projects confusion and it projects uh, this image of a leader who is not in control of himself or of his policy, which is a very, you know, th- that is a, a, a very dicey and I think frightening and disadvantageous thing in these sort of nuclear races, these nuclear war, the, the, these nuclear cold wars um, and these nuclear politics. That's not good because the decision to, um, the, to the, the opportunity to make any decision rests with one person um, in many cases. And that means that, um, you know, many people are involved in the process, but it ultimately comes down to one person. Um, and if that one person's faculties are in question, it doesn't look good for their country or the country that re- they're representing. So I, I, I think it's been good that to an extent, the Biden administration is too incompetent to escalate. Um, if they wanted to execute an, ex- an escalation, um, I don't know that they have the competence to, to do that. Um, but then that's also a little frightening. Like if they actually started to try and escalate, um, where might that take us? I, I, I just think Biden sort of, um, the same instincts that led him to push back a bit. Um, on the blob when it came to Afghanistan, the blob and the generals when it came to Afghanistan. So far, uh, listen, from 30,000 foot view, I'm glad that, you know, Lindsey Graham is not president right now, honestly. Um, I think I think it's actually it's a really good comparison you drew. I don't think necessarily with Lindsey Graham, but with um, with Trump in terms of unpredictability, because you're right. Trump was famously sort of unpredictable um, in the sense that people and especially probably foreign actors legitimately sometimes feared that he was crazy and that he could do anything. Um, and that's actually not the first time in our history that that's been our advantage for, I mean, um, Andrew Jackson famously, like he, he won a lot of his foreign policy goals simply by being so belligerent and crazy. And nobody was sure that he wouldn't start a war, for example, over a question of honor, like the, like France paying back the United States, the money that it owed, even though France and the United States were allies, right? Um, nobody was sure that he wouldn't go to war over those kinds of issues, even though a war between the United States and France at that point would have been very, very lopsided, right? Um, against the United States favor. There is a certain, um, you know, there, there is a certain power for, that comes from, um, it's cliche to say, uh, you know, power like that strength actually uh you know delays or or prevents warfare but that i i i do think um, and i think apparently there's a poll that shows um something like 60 plus percent of americans agree with this that this would not have happened under trump because putin was actually afraid of what yeah. trump might do um and, it, and because he was unpredictable but you're right this is a completely different kind of unpredictability under biden I, I, it's it's this bizarre like the need to be very rhetorically strong, almost in a in, in a domestic context um, about this war. But it, there's there's a tension between his words and his actions. He's on the one hand, framing this as uh, something like the moral arc of history, right, um, and tying it to all of the domestic sort of um, pronouncements of the left, uh, and then at the same time. He's being provocatively weak in sort of executing on this arc of history. That's a good way um, to say it. Provocatively weak. Yeah. And I actually think this is worse, right? Like I, I may be, I'm probably more, uh, more open to, let's say, a more aggressive foreign policy in this instance than you are. 
um, which is not to say that I think we should be needlessly escalatory. But I, I, I tend to think that actually, you know, when you convince people that you're willing to escalate, that's when you don't need to. Um, but regardless of where you fall, it seems to me like this is this is kind of the opposite of TR's maxim, right? It's it's, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick like this is yelling very loudly about the arc of history and how Putin is a murderer and how Russia needs regime change at home, but then carrying a very tiny stick to back up your actions. Um, and that strikes me as in many ways, the worst of all worlds. Like if you have a more isolationist foreign policy or less interventionist foreign policy and you speak softly and you kind of have this attitude um, that, that leaves open the possibility that there are lines that you might really enforce and care about, but just that you don't care about certain things going on in the world versus drawing these, to use the Obama analogy, drawing these red lines everywhere and talking about the morality of the situation. Of course, Putin is a thug and a murderer. Um, but it, it, when you, as a president, as opposed to a commentator, say things like that um, and then don't back it up, you are creating the expectation that your words cannot be taken seriously. And I think that is is really, really dangerous. Yeah, no, that's completely true, especially, again, in nuclear politics. And, and to clarify something that I said earlier on this point, there are shades of blobbiness when it comes to this particular conflict. You have everyone from Lindsey Graham up to Joe Biden and the various people advising them that could be considered within the blob, but do have these sort of major differences when it comes to like a no-fly zone. That is a huge, huge question that even people in the so-called foreign policy blob disagree with. So when Joe Biden uh, bucked the generals on Afghanistan, that was like shocking for Joe Biden because I think it demonstrated this like weird um, vitality or like this this obstinance that I don't see Joe Biden having because he doesn't seem capable of it. Um, but that was just something that was like very deeply rooted, I think, in him for, for years. But on this conflict, he's all over the place. Um, and, and the regime change slip up is a really interesting one um, because I think what he was it shows that like you when you're the president of the United States, especially the kind that um, his, was hysterical over Donald Trump's, you know, casual use of language, you are very careful with your words in these types of situations. And Joe Biden um, was a, a senator for years and years and years. He knows damn well. Um, and he believes damn well in those sort of boundaries and sh linguistic strictures and all of that. Um, and so if anything, I think the message that he just telegraphed to, to foreign leaders that are well aware of, of his knowledge of these sort of uh, norms is that he is no longer in a position to uh, uphold those norms, even if he wants to, because his mind just isn't there. And again, what that telegraphs is that his mind just isn't there. And by the way, he's in charge of the greatest nuclear power in the world during a conflict with another great nuclear power. It's profoundly embarrassing. And I, I like the language that you used, Inez, that it is provocative because to your point, Putin under Trump, um, you, you don't know if he's going to take the advice of Jim Mattis one day and John Bolton another day or if he's going to take the advice of Steve Bannon, right? Like you actually don't know what's going to come out of that administration, not even just because Donald Trump is unpredictable, but because he listened to both the blob and people outside the blob. And he kind of had them all just sort of like clanging um, when it came to his foreign policy in his ears and, um, you know, let the debate kind of, he, he wasn't this entrenched sort of foreign policy ideologue. 
And I think that probably was very helpful. Uh, it was frightening at some moments, like when he started tweeting about uh, the size of his button uh, versus the size of Kim Jong-un's button. But there is really something to that. And I think the contrast with provocative weakness is a really instructive one. And Joe Biden, um, you know, saying what he said and, and failing to uphold these linguistic norms that he has upheld for years, even as a self-proclaimed gaffe machine, is a sign that, you know, in a situation as serious as this, he can't even control um, his gaffes. He can't control his language because his mind is not there. And the mind of the president of the principal in nuclear politics is uh, essential. And everything comes down to that. Um, and, and so that puts us in a, in a difficult position. Yeah. One, one of the things I, I really wanted to ask you in particular, Emily, about is and I've struggled with this myself. I think um, in a previous episode, I, I said it's like this I I have on, um, you know, the little angel and devil on your shoulders analogy. Like I, this particular devil, I've never uh, actually had any until now had any like um, sort of inclination towards, and that would be like sort of a Chomskyite anti-Americanism. Right. Yes. Um, I've, I've always believed very strongly in, in that America has been a force for good in the world. That's not to say that we don't make mistakes, that we don't, that those mistakes as a global superpower don't have, very, very real consequences around the world for people's lives. Um, but that seemed to me always to be true about any global superpower. And it was always very clear to me that I would rather, um, in, in William F. Buckley's famous phrase about when he was talking about the moral equivalence that the left used to make between the Soviet Union and the United States, um, that you know the person who uh, pushes an old lady in front of the bus and the person who pushes her out of the way of the bus are functionally both people who push old ladies. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've always very strongly believed in all of this. Um, and, and the sort of moral that, that America was as good a global leader as, you know, anyone with, with an understanding of, of sort of history and human nature could hope to expect in terms of, of using its power justly. Um, you know, that, that assumption is much more difficult for me and I think a lot of conservatives today um, because we see domestically how corrupted um, in our, our institutions have become both ideologically and just in terms of competence, right? It's very, like arguments like this that to me, once, if, if um, you know, Russia had invaded Ukraine, uh, let's say in, in 1995, I, I think, or or um, let's say in, in, in the late 90s or even, even in the 2000s, um, I, I think this would have been much, much clearer to me, uh, the contours, and it's still clear. And, and sometimes I think we use too much of our domestic frame in, in looking at what's going on because the one thing that seems to be lost in a lot of commentary is, is Ukrainian agency in all of this and, and of course, um, Ukrainian nationalism. Um, but from the domestic perspective in the United States, I, I find myself having much less confidence that, for example, alignment with the United States is a good thing. Um, and, and because that alignment has been used uh, to advance not what I would call traditional sort of American values, but has been used to advance now the values of the people who control our institutions, um, which I so strenuously oppose at home. Um, so that's been, it's been like a complicated, like it, it's difficult for me to, to, to reconcile these two things, the kind of longstanding commitment I have to the American order and the decline of American 
values at home. Um, I don't know how you square those, those two things. Um, but it, it, it is now like a difficult question for me in a way that it never would have been um, before really imbibing. And I think especially after the pandemic, how unserious and how like this stuff doesn't just dissolve when we're confronted with serious problems, right? I think there's a certain school of thought out there that says, yeah, wokeness is bad at home. Like this stuff is bad. But as soon as we really have to confront something serious, it'll fade away. It's really just a, a sort of ephemera of decadence right? Um, that will be knocked off as soon as we have to actually confront a rising China or we have real problems. And, and the pandemic seemed to me to be a rebuttal to that idea that, in fact, even when we do confront real serious problems, um, we, we can't be competent and apolitical and set aside the fact that wokeness has taken over these institutions. I think it is still a black and white simple question. Um, and I think America is clearly on the, the side of right still, but it is, I completely agree with you that the lines have been blurred on some important sort of matters. If you're making a pro con list um, that you know, some of those questions, because uh, you know, the, the reason also, by the way, to remember that this is still, I think black and white is that you and I are sitting here um, having this conversation we are still using a Google-based browser um, and we are, you know, still, it doesn't mean that those threats are not very real and that these major companies are uh, governed by this terrible ideology that Macron and others have actually explicitly said is a poisonous kind of American export, which is when Macron said that was like one of the worst moments I've ever had as American sitting back and thinking, we are, this is our export. This is, this is what we export now. Um, you know, we, we have, we don't have Detroit. We have Providence. Um, and the, the ideology of, of students in Birkenstocks at Brown women's in the Brown women's studies department. Um, it's a little bit different than cars. Um, but anyway, that's a digression. Um, but it, so I, I think that is, that is true. Although uh, I would I would say because you know the the that America still has fight in it because the the institutions formed on the bedrock of our constitution are still fighting for the principles on which they were founded um, and you know we can still have these conversations without threat of you know Google literally turning us off while we're doing it or reporting us to the police or whatever. Um, we are still a in contrast with uh, Putin's Russia or uh, let's see, you know, China um, or Middle Eastern countries, some Middle Eastern countries for all of our faults. Um, the, the sort of the, the balance here is still very much clearly on the side of the United States because we are still on the side of freedom, even though, we are rapidly sort of descending into a place where we at some point have to admit we aren't, but I don't think we're there yet. And we're not there yet, especially when compared uh, to, to some of our adversaries, Russia, China, et cetera, for all of our nation building, for all of our um, regime change that was far beyond um, what we should have been doing. All of these questions, um, we still have created a haven um, for people from other countries who are fleeing tyranny um, and want to enjoy our freedoms. But it is very true 
that we're in the process of making ourselves into less of a haven. Um, Zed Jelani, who used to work at Center for American Progress and is very much on the left, wrote a, a wonderful article about how we are still the good guys um, on his Substack. I believe that everyone should check out. Um, so for me, it's still a black and white. It's still a black and white question. Um, I'm not, you know, burning my Dixie Chick CDs, but um, mentally, <laughs> I, I'm still on, on our side. Um, you know, I guess I have, I have two responses to that. One, you know, I, I agree the country is still good and that the country largely is still, um, fighting is, is the phrase that you used. But what I'm less certain about is that the institutions that would be governing foreign policy are right. So, um, you know, I, I very much still believe that this is a fight here. I don't believe that we have descended into, you know, a tyranny that's comparable, for example, to Russia's, um, at home, but that's because of, essentially Americans outside of our institutions. And it, it, it's a very difficult question actually at all to compare because, and I've been thinking a lot about this because I've been kicking around this dissident piece for a long time that i still haven't published because I haven't decided quite what I think about it. Um, I think sometimes even in the comparison, we are in some ways better and in some ways worse, right? So like, it is obviously true that we can still speak without being jailed. It is obviously true that the opposition in this country um, is still not treated like Navalny, right, in, in Russia. These are obviously true things. On the other hand, people understood that Pravda was false, right? People understood that the nature of the government and the nature and line of power that was being applied, at least in the late Soviet Union. And there is a diffuseness um, to the power structure in the United States of how that line is deployed that I think in some ways makes it much easier to live under and at the same time much more difficult to actually like nail down and try to stop. Um Again, all of this stuff, though, and I, I, this is this is where I've broken. I think from a lot of the people that I generally agree with with regard to analysis of the United States, people so-called the new right or populist right, whatever you want to call it. This is an understanding that's fairly new, even in the United States. You know, Ukrainians when Ukrainians talk about you know, let's say aligning themselves more strongly with the West um, and with liberal democracy, th these are things that still have meaning to to them I, I don't think that uh and i guess because i don't i don't have the position say uh, that some folks you know on on the new right have about this kind of decline being inherent to the american system in some way that like there's an inevitable chain of reaction starting from 1776 and the you know even before that from the enlightenment all the way to wokeness and how we live today i don't think that is like a an inevitable chain of reactions and yes. therefore i don't have this the same like I, I think that applying sort of 2022 pessimism about the American system to a decision, you know, in in Eastern Europe to try to escape the orbit of um, you know, of of Russia and very real like the Russian system, right? As opposed as as something different from the liberal system because that I do agree with, and I I think the most egregious sort of error that people are making is that because they're critiquing our own system, they can't recognize that this is a system that has, you know, 
first of all, the Russian system is not some kind of like conservative trad utopia. This is uh, yes. idiotic. I don't understand why people believe this at all. People, otherwise smart people, um, they suffer from many of the same uh, sort of maladies of modernity as we do. They, they are also pessimistic, also, um, you know, irony poisoned. Also, they don't go to church. Their Those abortion are rates are high, right? Yeah. Family breakdown and atomization has struck Russia. I mean, don't forget they lived under communism for, you know, uh, decades and decades. This is it. <laughs> it's that that line of thinking to me is completely like crazy, especially when I look at some of the very smart people who seem to be going down that route, like like um, Christopher Caldwell who has been on this train for years and since at least 2017 um, has been on this train of like, Oh, you know, Putin's Russia is the great like alternative to corrupted liberal democracy or woke liberal democracy. Um, but, but at the same time, like you look at the, the border between Poland and Ukraine in, in a very real sense represents uh, these two systems, Right. Liberal democracy with all of its flaws and all of, of the encroaching wokeness, which now, you know, Poland and Hungary are both in a similar position in terms of trying to fend off from the EU, right? Not wanting for various reasons. And their the governments are very different and there are lots of differences between these two countries, but both of them were united in trying to push back, for example, against some of the, you know, um, gender ideology stuff that, that the EU wants them to adopt, right? Um, even with all that, that border with Ukraine represents not only four times the GDP per capita, and they started out roughly similar, um, but it represents two totally different trajectories for post-Soviet or post-like Warsaw Pact countries coming out of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's clear to me that liberal democracy has done something that Ukrainians very much look across the border and say, no, that's better. That's better than what we have. It's better than being an orbit state in a kleptocracy. And yeah. th so like I, I, you can see even how I talk about this, I'm a little bit mixed up, but I, I, I don't think that we can apply how we are now disappointed because I don't think it's inevitable here. I don't think we can apply how we are now so disappointed with our institutions and with wokeness and all the, the sort of very real problems and very real worries I have about tyranny in the United States in a different way. Um, I don't think we can apply this on uh, to Ukrainians and, and the way that they think about an alternative to the system that they've lived under for the last several decades. Well, and if anything, it's actually a reminder to jealously guard our principles and the norms that they have created when you see suddenly the establishment media flocking to the defense of nationalism and traditional masculinity and um, the second, the, the the sort of principles behind the Second Amendment, with you have Ukrainians arming themselves to defend their property and their families and their country. So when you have an establishment establishment media, when for its own sort of ideological purposes and corporate purposes, rushing to defend literally the nationalism that in this country they have equated with racism and bigotry and intentionally conflated with white nationalism. When you see the establishment media sort of rushing to defend that when it is virtuous um, and it does deserve defense, as it does in the case of so many of these Ukrainians, um, obviously not the neo-Nazis, but uh, you know, d decent Ukrainians who have virtuously taken up arms, um, men who have defended their children and their wives, um, and you see these stories being heralded by the establishment media, this is a sign 
that we still believe in our hearts um, in the virtues of these principles. And we see how desperate people are to enjoy their fruits. Um, and it should be a reminder for us to, to sort of jealously guard them, not to covet what they are fleeing from. Um, and that's sort of the, the clash in nuclear powers, China, Russia, the United States, who have very different concepts of, um, how government of, of the relationship between government and its subjects, government and its people. If you look at the three of those, at least the promise in their principles, their organizing principles and ideas, um, we do not execute ours perfectly. Um, but I would, you know, say that a human being is better off um, with the, the aspirations of our principles uh, here in the United States and broadly in the West than anywhere else. Um, and, and what that means is we need to fight to restore them and to save them. Uh, but it, we are we are lucky that we do have um, a constitution that for the time being, and I don't disagree with you at all, Inez, and we had this conversation on Federalist Radio Hour last week about how precarious this is, about how close we are to sort of descending into um, the into a place where the constitution might as well just be shredded because nobody has any respect for it anymore and it doesn't undergird our our culture and our economy. I don't disagree that we are we are rapidly descending with every new graduating class from the academy into that hellscape. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. And I think so long as we have those those principles um, in contrast with the organizing principles of Russia and China, um, this is a reminder to fight for what we have here. Um, and that doesn't mean we have to build nations. Uh, we, we don't have to take on Ukraine as a nation building project, um, nor should we. Uh, but it does mean that we if other nuclear powers see our concept as, of freedom as a threat to their empire, um, then we should be proud. Um, if, if that's what the threat is, if the threat is human freedom, then we, we should be proud to uphold it and reminded to guard it. Um, I only have one more thing to add, and I think this is a good uh, opportunity to transition exactly to what our leadership has been doing about us as we hover on the event horizon of tyranny in the United States. Um, but just one thing that I would maybe um, rephrase something that you said, uh, it's not even that the constitution will be shredded or, be, or the people don't take it seriously, because I think that has been the case for a long time, at least on the left. Um, it's also that the particular type of tyranny that seems to be rising in the United States doesn't really it evades in many ways the constraints of the constitution, right? So, um, which is why I think increasingly you'll see conservatives retreat into the public. Mm -hmm. um, and by that, I mean the public sphere generally, like things interacting with government, um, because actually our system does work very well in a certain sense that it's designed to do to restrain these impulses of government, um, even in our very sort of degraded state vis-a-vis -vis what the founders imagined the constitution would restrain those checks and balances. Actually, I think Trump's presidency is a really good example, actually, of how, um, you know, impulses from one branch can be checked by the other. And actually, we do have still plenty of, of this like systemic, uh, genius in, in the way our government works, even as we've, we've ditched a lot of the important constraints the founders put. But so that I am less pessimistic about, but, but it's, it's difficult. And maybe there are reforms we can make, you know, to, to tie these two things together. But the problem, it seems to me now, is that 
that sort of tyrannical impulse can be circum can can circumvent in many ways the the obstacles the founders put in place uh, for exactly that kind of tyranny because they're what we're we're facing is a kind of um, private private tyranny. Um, which is, yeah. as far as I know, as far as I understand the history of the world, and maybe somebody can, you know, email me and tell me that there's some other example. But as far as I understand it, um, this is new and uniquely American. Like, right. um, th- this is sort of a new development in the history of how men tyrannize men. Yes, um, it is. So, and maybe somebody can write in and tell me why why that's not true, and there's some precedent somewhere. But but it's uh, it's it's a very different problem. Uh, well, but but let's. Well, I was going to say quickly, that's why those romantic sort of overtures to human freedom that I just said fall flat on a lot of people these days because uh, they'll say, well, it's it's the human freedom to pretend gender isn't real and to live in a postmodern dystopia. Um, and again, yes, uh, but it's better. It is, is far superior to the concept of, of freedom that is enforced in, in China and Russia, certainly. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about... Uh leave aside the complicated question of how much our internal uh, pessimism should guide America's foreign policy. Um, <laughs> uh, but how about, I, I, I think it's it's a pessimism that is not apparently shared by Republican leadership. Um, and and be, I say that because they seem to be operating very much with on, on assumptions that were outdated probably even in 2012, but are certainly outdated now. Um, and, and so the, the newest sort of outrage for me and the thing that sent me into a rage spiral in the group chat that Emily and I share, um, <laughs> with Rachel, Bo- Rachel Bobard, um, which we sometimes do uh, a podcast version of that group chat, uh, over at the Federalist Radio Hour. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out. But, um, you know, the thing, the most recent ragey thing for me was that, uh, we have edited the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, quite substantially in ways that I find very, very worrying. And it was just slipped into the omnibus, signed into law. Um, It was passed out of committee by including Republicans, right? Um, And it received Republican votes overall for this bill, which apparently also included, of course, aid to Ukraine. So it was very, very difficult for people to vote against and when that clearly should have been a separate vote as opposed to all the other goodies that the left wanted. Um, but but in any case, this became law with very little Republican objection. Um, and, and those changes are uh, that psychological abuse, which does not have a, a good definition, um, among other uh, sort of Ill- ill-defined words, has been, um, you know, sort of retooled uh, with a lot of consequences for college campuses. So the worst case scenario for this piece of legislation is something that um, is basically like Title IX Inquisition courts that we've, we are familiar with now since the Obama administration, um, that the Trump administration attempted to deal with through Title IX, which is to say mere accusation is taken as proof, um, of, of, of guilt. Um, there are massive society, you know, consequences assigned, uh, to often young men, almost always young men, um, in these situations without any, anything that would be recognizable as due process, which is why a lot of these courts, keep, um, quote unquote, kangaroo courts or whatever on campuses keep getting smacked down by actual courts. Um, but for me, the potential, there's the potential here for this piece of legislation, which became law with basically no objections from the GOP, some very small, like some very brave and small voices aside, um, 
it has the potential to, to create that kind of inquisition environment, not for drunken hookups, but for relationships and perhaps like breakups and stuff like that. And that seems to me to be a really bad idea to say at the least, um, to say the least. But the question that I wanted to ask you about this is how is it that the leadership of the Republican Party and generally, I think, of, of sort of the right in this country still doesn't understand? Here we are spending the last half an hour waxing sort of depressingly philosophical about whether or not the U.S. really can hope to stand for freedom abroad if, as we, we talk, teeter on the event horizon of tyranny at home. And yet, uh, not only are our leaders not as pessimistic as us, they don't even seem to think that this is any political moment out of the ordinary. I don't know. Um, and, and this is something uh, I, <laughs> I guess I remember this would have been 2014. I think IWF um, at the time had a briefing on the problems with VAWA. So this is, mm-hmm. this is pre-Trump. Um, and this working is, on this issue for a very long time. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And, and sort of dissident feminists. And, and the reason that I was at this briefing, I, I was, I think it was on the house side. Uh, it was on the Hill. Um, I think the reason I was at this briefing is because they invited Christina Hoff Summers, who I was working for at the time. Um, and has been, there, there have been sort of dissident feminists and sort of uh, feminist writers who have been concerned about the problems in this legislation that keep happening and without Republican backlash at all, because Republicans, and I remember this very much from this particular briefing, whenever you talk to um, actual elected members of Congress or people at sort of the establishment apparatus, they are terrified to touch these issues. And even post-Yunkin, even post-Trump, when it comes to women, they still are. And that's kind of fascinating because it's it's a little bit different than where you see the left go wildly over the top when, you know, you're 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 racist if you disagree with CRT and you're a bigot if you disagree with Leah Thomas. All of those things Republicans um, are leaning into and have gotten better, not not great, but better at fighting. And and sort of the RNC has learned that this is um, to Inez's point, as she always says, that the culture war is the big tent. Um, but I think because for so long. There was there was just fear. I mean, the way you had to talk about this had to be perfectly focus grouped. If you, if you thought it was worth delving into this issue, if you did, if you were one of those brave people who did, you had to be perfectly focus grouped, and you had to you know talk like a liberal about women um, and women blah 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 blah. So it's just dumb. Instead of saying, "Listen, this is anti woman. This is misogynistic. This puts women at risk. This is uh, doing the beginning, the 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 uh, bidding of the radical left at the expense of of average middle class working women." Um, you know, th- there's just still no will to talk about that. And I think this rate this issue has gone under the radar for so long because of that that even now it still exists. I think it's amazing and actually a really fascinating case study. Yeah, I mean, my question is what will it take then for the leadership? Because like you, I I think I was um, somewhat in a little bit more optimistic at saying that, yeah, maybe they actually do get this, especially since they were running on 
Um, we, we had a crop of, of candidates who are now running on cultural issues in the way that they had not before. And yes, you know, sending out fundraising emails doesn't necessarily lead to legislation, um, but at least they were sort of thinking in the right way. And, and so that was kind of encouraging. Um, but it really has not seemed to translate into an agenda. And that was always the big question for me, right? Is, is um, talking about these issues more, is it going to translate into actual policymaking and prioritizing of cultural issues that have gone by the wayside for, for so long and so many recent stints in power for the Republican party. Um, and I kind of thought, Oh, maybe this dam finally is going to break. Right. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, we have this whole kerfuffle um, on Capitol Hill over Senator Rick Scott being bold enough to actually release an agenda, which I have some, some, you know, quibbles and stuff with, with agenda, not least of which is that he uses the word gender instead of sex. Ooh. Um, but but like it's an agenda of things that people care about. And apparently uh, this is not welcome in the Republican leadership because they would like to simply run on the overreach of the left without actually putting forward anything they're going to do about it in a serious way. Yeah, you stand a throat history yelling stop, but not redirecting traffic. Uh, yeah, that's a that's actually a really big problem. Nicely uh, said. Well, do you remember, um, actually, again, under the Obama administration in the years where the kangaroo, the years of the kangaroo courts, uh, Republicans did not want to touch that issue at all. Actually, most of the pushback was coming from conservative media, um, not from elected Republicans. And it's rare that you have such a clear cut issue as that one. The Republicans uh, had been hit with the war on women charge from the media and were really terrified. Like they did not want to talk about life, uh, despite what the left thinks that Republicans are just champing at the bit to talk about abortion and sex and marriage. They're not. Uh, but it, it, it did not want to touch that issue. And I'm sure, and as you remember that uh, very clearly, and Betsy DeVos sort of came in and even had the support of like groups that normally lean left, legal groups that normally lean left and did all of this. Um, but then you have uh, Biden nominating like the person who enforced this in the Obama administration and Republicans don't give a damn. Uh, so it's not just like Catherine Lemon I'm talking about or Lem how, do you know how to pronounce that correctly? I've I know how to write it, it, but I don't know how to say it. Yeah. Many, so many, many such cases in my lexicon. Many such cases. Uh, the enforcer of the camper, the, the, the kangaroo court regime on campuses, um, has been installed at the education department and Republicans did not lean into the fight. Did they oppose it? Um, and did they ask questions? Sure. Did they lean into it? Absolutely not. They, ha they should be, this should be a huge part of Republican messaging in an election year. Um, but, you know, but men's lives had been ruined by this. Women's lives had been ruined by this. And Biden just got back to business as usual. Um, and, Inez, as you say, we can expect these rules to be reversed and, and shifted back to the Obama era um, shortly. That is coming up and it is going to have a very real effect on our college campuses, on our young people, on our young men and young women. Um, and it's imminent and nobody's talking about it. So it's not just that they aren't leaning into the fight. It's that they don't know where the fight is at all. Um, and it, it's like they don't even care to find out. I would really like to see a legislative version of the question that Senator Blackburn asked the Supreme Court nominee in the last week. I would like to see a piece of legislation to see who would like to vote for the biological definition of a woman in federal law. And it would not be just performative. Um, 
because actually, as you just pointed out, one of the, the regs that we expect to drop um, through Title IX, not only is the Obama administration almost certainly going to restore uh, the, the complete uh, destruction of due process that we saw with regard to sexual uh, assault accusations, not only are they going to restore the incredibly broad definition of sexual harassment that eats into free speech. And but what I mean by that is that we were seeing on college campuses cases where somebody, for example, was making a statement about, you know, gender or sex roles or the kind of conversations yeah. that you and I have all the time, Emily, and the school was interpreting that as sexual harassment. Um, so that standard is is probably being restored. So not only all the bad stuff that we had um, under Obama that did lead to so much, so much confusion and frankly, so many ruined lives on college campuses, um, that's all coming back. But in addition, we are probably going to get regulations that define sex in Title IX as gender identity. Yes. Including gender identity, right? And remember, uh, John King did that in the last months of the Obama administration Mm -hmm. via a letter in the same way that the Title IX regime had been enforced that that changed the interpretation of Title IX to not just sex, but that sex also uh, uh, includes gender identity. They did that with a freaking letter. Um, And you had some sort of cultural conservatives pushing back on it at the time, but that should have been a five alarm fire and it should be a five alarm fire now. Yeah. As an aside, this is one of the reasons that I oppose the Trump administration's efforts um, to, to put in place a federal tax credit, federal school choice program, even though I'm very pro school choice. In fact, that is my day job um, is, is promoting school choice, but uh, because the department can put forward regs like this uh, with a stroke of a pen. That is not really the case on the state level. Like there's much, there are many more, um, you know, sort of there would be a lot more pushback from private school groups and so on. Uh, I think on the federal level, it makes it very, very dangerous for private schools to take federal money because initially that Dear Colleague letter of Obama's, they did clarify that they meant public schools, but initially it went out to all schools. Yep. Um, well, and, and it so can be actually trying to change. He schools. was trying to force private schools by yeah. the stroke of a pen, private schools to abolish men's and women's locker rooms. If you take right? if you take public money, if you take subsidies as every college except for pretty much Hillsdale does, um, even though that they they changed, you know, who the letter was directed at, that is precedent setting and can be cited in you're a lawyer. And as I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but that can be cited in court. Um, if the federal government says to you know receive federal funding, this is what you have to do. Yeah, look, you take federal federal money. There are strings attached, um, and and I think look, all all public money has that danger inherent in it. But on the federal level, it's much more. Um, I think it's much more dangerous because of the way that federal agencies operate. So you just yes. said this is this can be done with a stroke of a pen. They literally just send out a dear colleague letter. Yes. And and what a dear colleague letter is is for the purposes of enforcement, the Department of Education understands the law to be this. Um and it's not supposed to be used to actually change the law, right? It's just supposed to clarify certain um, minor aspects, but that is how democratic administrations have used that power in the past has been basically to nod nod wink wink like we're going to investigate you and that possibly, would- you know, um adjudicate cases uh, yeah. involving you in in through the federal bureaucracy. Right? It would be um, a knockdown, drag out legislative battle and they know it and it would not have ever passed Congress at the time. Though it would have been in the same way with the Equality Act still hasn't passed Congress. It would have been a knock. It, it, w- it would have been a bitter, bitter fight. And instead they circumvented it with the stroke of a pen knowing damn well what they were doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, again, 
one of my favorite things to talk about and, and something that I, I talked with Eric Hoffman about earlier this month on the pod is, is the power of bureaucracy um, is, is really like, this is one of my buckets of things that if any serious, to my mind, any serious, um, you know, let's say Republican backlash that comes into power, um, any serious bunch of policymakers have to consider the power of unelected bureaucracy because yes. they all have been a powerhouse in in just circumventing public debate. You know, having a majority doesn't matter if the people making decisions have no accountability to the majority at all. And increasingly, that's what that's what happened the last two years. That's what's happening um, with a lot of these woke issues. It is not going through the legislature on the the K twelve level. It's often not going through the school board. It's going through the district bureaucracy. Right. Yeah. Um, that a lot of these policies, for example, the gender policies, a lot of the gender policies go through the district bureaucracy. They do not ever land on, say, the docket for a, a city council meeting or for a school board meeting. Right. So um, a lot of this really does circumvent democracy for the, exactly the reason that you say, um, Emily, which is they don't they want to avoid the public debate and they want to just quietly implement more and more radical policies through essentially bureaucratic standards. Right. Um, best practices standards or through um, the promulgation, not even I don't even want to call it regulation because regulation requires notice and comment. It's just these dear colleague letters that go out. And all of a sudden, it seems like every school is following this policy. Well, it's because there was a letter that was sent out that said, if you don't follow this policy, we might prosecute you. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's. So yeah, the education department has has also enforced different standards when it comes to race, and they've done it with strokes yep. of pen and, and unelected bureaucracy. Um, and it, we have we have uh, transferred so much Article One power to the executive branch. Uh, we are not functioning in the way that we're supposed to. That's for sure. Let alone at a country that has grown to to this size. Um, I mean that in terms of population and geography, it's it's completely anathema to how the system's supposed to work. Um. Finally, I would be amiss if I did not ask Emily, culture editor, about the <laughs> biggest pop culture uh, event of the month, which was, um, I guess I'm now going to be calling it Slapgate at the Oscars. <laughs> um, so we, we act, which I actually saw live, which I almost never do. I haven't watched I'm shocked. Annette told me this. I was like, you were watching the Oscars? <laughs> a friend of mine had like a, a little watching party. And um, so we my husband and i we went and we watched this live and um it was the most exciting thing that has happened at the oscars in a long time um you know there's been so many takes around this um obviously will smith uh slapped chris rock for making a joke about his wife um and her haircut which is apparently due to alopecia um the fact that she's bald ish she has some hair like but very very short um it has to do with a condition she has and chris rock made a joke about it uh and Will Smith slapped him. So Emily, culture editor, what should we think about this? Okay, so this is a perfectly debatable situation, right? Because it's a Rorschach test and we have this question of masculinity um, at the center of it. So is it, uh, is it masculine or is it petulant? Is it virtuous or is it petulant to defend your wife's honor um, when the joke is basically that she looks like she might be starring in G.I. Jane 2? Well, uh, first of all, celebrities need to be bullied more often by uh, other celebrities, by journalists. Um, that just needs to... By the first, Emily is pro-bullying. 
Oh, I absolutely am pro. This is Joan Rivers, um, and, and this is what comedians used to do, and this is what the entertainment media used to be a little bit better at. You have to hold celebrities in check because they're extremely powerful people, um, and they have the power to set norms. They have the power to spend vast amounts of money in our politics and in our culture, and they do. Um, and they deserve to be be treated uh, basically like politicians are in terms of being held to account by the press. Um, that doesn't mean that they need to. Artists need to be behave like politicians, um, but they should be, you know, scrutinized um, in the same way. They're public figures and they are in control of our culture and our politics in many ways. So they deserve that. Um, so is it virtuous or is it petulant? I think given the the scale of the joke, it's petulant. The, the joke was the, the joke was innocuous. Um, you know, if he had said something truly bad about his wife's appearance or character um, and not just a minor little quip about her hair, then get on stage. Yeah, sure. I, I'm much more willing to defend Will Smith in that situation. Chris Rock took it like a man. Will Smith should have taken the joke like Chris Rock took the punch. Um, Will Smith, I think, redeemed himself by then winning Best Actor uh, which is an award he totally deserved and saying Denzel Washington and pulled him aside and said, you got to watch out for the devil when you're, you're at your highest moment, because that's when he comes for you apologizing to the Academy. He didn't apologize to Chris Rock, um, uh, but it was apologetic. It was sincere. It was tearful in a way that I think is, is maybe helpful to see this, this healthy masculinity. You know, I was just trying to defend my wife's honor and protect my family, tied it into the character that he played that he won the award for. It was, it was almost poetic. So I liked it. I don't think it was like perfect and celebrities never are, but uh, I don't think it, I, I think he sort of redeemed himself. Although the last point I'll add is that Will and Jada Pinkett Smith are deeply weird individuals, um, as artists, you know, arguably should be, um, who are not role models for anybody who have been involved with Scientology, who have an open marriage, um, and who challenge, I think, healthy norms about men, women, and marriage um, from their platforms. And, uh, you know, if Will Smith wanted to protect his wife, as I, I tweeted, um, because uh, like Donald Trump, I, I feel the need to express myself um, in pithy form on crucial topics. If Will Smith wanted to protect his wife, he should start by insisting on monogamy. What a hot take. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've really been trying to avoid like the... That take, I think, is a little ridiculous considering men have been punching each other and worse over insults to women in their lives for millennia and far predates, you know, wokeness or or um, this notion that words are violence. <laughs> there have always been certain things that are provocative enough uh, to to sometimes uh, spur violence between especially between men. Um but it's just it's so hard to like avoid these takes. All Twitter, this, we're recording this on Monday, all of Twitter all today has been takes of varying levels of humor and ridiculousness um, <laughs> yes <laughs> about what this says about our society and my very very critical take on this is that I'm really upset that the person who got slapped at the Oscars wasn't Timothy Shamalu <laughs> just Shalom. what he was wearing and just his general visage and the way that he is he I looks like a like Tim Burton. You're character. pro bullying. I'm pro bullying that guy. Yeah, bully Chalamet. Particular. No, for sure, bully Chalamet. hundred uh, <laughs> percent. Terrible Lori and Little Women. Um, he was good in French Dispatch, but no, I'm I'm all for bullying Chalamet. I think that's great. Um, the more of it, the better. 
But it is interesting that these were two like major A-listers. And that's part of the reasons that all the Oscars have sort of like foundered is because we have these films that are more niche and meaning we have these celebrities that are more niche and Hollywood doesn't know how to create new Will Smiths and new Chris Rocks. Um, and so we're, you know, watching these middle-aged men uh, trade barbs and get slapped. Gets, I mean, he slapped him um, on stage at the Oscars. And I don't think we'll have middle-aged A-list celebrities in 20 years to slap each other. Um, and then the Oscars will have, you know, 500,000 people watching instead of the very low, like 9 million or whatever they had the year before, which pales in comparison. That's how many people I looked this up last night watched the VMAs in 2009 when Kanye stormed the stage and tried to take Taylor Swift's award away from her. That's a VMAs. The 2009 VMAs are now at the same level of the Oscars in 2022. <laughs> you know, I, I've, been, I've been trying not to opine, but it's like almost irresistible at this point. And the only like larger thing, aside from who needs to be slapped, um, that I can think of is that I do think, especially after the pandemic, but even before, I do think that we have a lot more people and not just, and perhaps, you know, Hollywood actors always were a little crazy. Um, but I do think we have more people on edge than before. And I think it's, I, I've talked about this with friends. I think people are more um, like visibly more, there are way more altercations that I see like in normal environments, right? So like in, in the airports and then some of this has to do with COVID restrictions and fighting about those, but some of it doesn't. Um, I just think people are, they're they're I think modern living and especially the isolation that most people endured for the last couple years has had some I hate the words mental health because I just I always just get uh I have the urge to roll my eyes every time somebody says something about mental health um but I do think people are more on edge than they used to be um and they're more apt to get into altercations um they have less control over their emotions and less control over acting out on those emotions than they did even five years ago. And I'm not sure what combination of perhaps Emily's theory of hyper novelty, social media, um, you know, pandemic lockdowns, isolation, you know, uh, break family breakdown. I mean, you just keep keep going the list and there's all kinds of, of um, factors that could be feeding into that. But I have noticed that people are in public settings way more on edge and way more apt to act out than they were even five years ago. I think people need more antidepressants. Like if there's something we don't have enough of, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. What we should all do is just swallow as many pills as possible to dull any sensation of life. Yes. And then we will be perfect candidates for the metaverse. You take your benzos, you put your Oculus headset on, kick back, do your work in the, the little metaverse room. Um, and you know, then go mini golfing afterwards, um, with somebody in Japan and you're honestly all set until you have to take another pill. <laughs> on that note, Emily Jashinsky, thank you so much for joining us, uh, on high noon after dark as we do every month. Um, at the end of every month, Emily and I will have our very upbeat and, um, optimistic conversations about, the the universe life everything and the future of the country uh but emily thanks thanks for joining us once again thanks Inez. and thank you to our listeners high noon with inez stepman is a production of the independent women's forum as always you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org please help us out by hitting the subscribe button leaving us a comment or review on apple Podcasts, acast google play youtube or iwf.org be brave and we'll see you next time on high noon <laughs>